Hey, history buffs, it's your host, Mark. Before we get to today's all new episode, I was wondering if you'd do me a quick favor, not a sexual one. If you're enjoying Fucked Up History, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. This will help make the show easier to find for new listeners, and new listeners means more fun and educational episodes. So hit that subscribe button and leave us a good review. Have you done it yet? I'm not starting the show until you do. Just kidding. Enjoy. We are flying over a well-known eastern city that is remarkable because manufacturing is almost non-existent. A city whose principal business is the entertainment of millions. Atlantic City, often called the vacation capital of the nation. There is nothing quite like summer on the Jersey Shore. And no Jersey Shore town has captured the imagination of Americans quite like Atlantic City. Used as fodder for everything from Broadway musicals to board games to television shows and films that starred Susan Sarandon before we all hated her, few American cities are more ingrained in our culture's lexicon than Atlantic City. And fewer American cities have had more ups and downs than AC. Its history is truly remarkable. And how the city mirrors the rest of America is quite undeniable. After all, we have a former Atlantic City casino owner running our country into the ground. On today's episode, we're going beyond the casinos to explore what put Atlantic City on the map. Spoiler, it's a lot of racism. And how the city has managed to have more comebacks than share. I'm your host, Mark Brennan Rosenberg, and this is Fucked Up History. On today's episode, I'm super excited to be speaking to Bryant Simon, a professor at Temple University and the author of Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America. Now, you know me, I am a history dork, and he is an excellent author. I actually read his book for the first time in 2015. I read it again last month. It's absolutely amazing. It's an absolute honor to have him. He's super, super smart, and you bitches are about to learn a lot of shit. While most East Coast cities that continue to thrive to this day were built out of necessity that kept them existing, whether it be trade, fishing, or production of goods, Atlantic City was founded on, well, a grift. And the legacy of grifting in Atlantic City continues to this day. Atlantic City begins essentially as a money-making gambit. People in the middle of the 19th century, boosters, entrepreneurs, had figured out a way to make money. Um, in places like K. May and Newport. Eventually, somebody draws a line on a map and takes the shortest route between Philadelphia and the Jersey Shore and says, well, that's Atlantic City. And they begin to develop the resort as a place that people can go as a respite from the city. So in part, it's, it's, it's a function of kind of the growing or growing cities, growing middle class, and also a perception that cities are dangerous. And they're dangerous in a kind of environmental way. That's the way they would have talked about it at the time. And so people begin to come to Atlantic City, not so much for leisure at first, 
but as a way to get access to nature, thinking that that will be sort of redeem them. And there's a really funny line um, that I kind of uncovered in the research where boosters are promising Philadelphians that if they come to Atlantic City, they'll get all they need, including lots of ozone. I, for one, love to get all of my ozone from Atlantic City as well. That's a good thing. And so the city starts out as a kind of like health resort for Philadelphia. And one of the things that they begin to play around with was how do you make nature accessible? And that was really how the boardwalk got started. Like it was the attempt to build a kind of accessible way to the ocean, to the breezes, to the air there. And eventually that would morph into something more along the lines of what we know now as an entertainment zone. But it's nature first and kind of a more modern sense of entertainment later. Nature first is usually what I associate with Atlantic City, but how are all of these people going to make money? This is America, after all. You made money in two ways, if you think about it. The railroads made money by selling tickets, and landowners made money by selling property. And these two agendas would eventually meet, right? And so part of what Atlantic City, almost from the get-go, is is a kind of affordable place at first to get nature, which was seen as a good thing, and later to get leisure. And, and the railroad entrepreneurs were onto that because the more tickets they could sell, the more excursions they could sell, the more money they could make. And the owners of land were just sort of figuring out ways to sell that land to the highest bidder, right? And so they began to sort of think about ways together to develop this place. It was born of a hustle and it would remain a place of a hustle. And, and that hustle was either above board or below board. The government of Atlantic City, from almost the get-go, um, was in on the hustle. Like yeah. the, the, the distance between commercial interests and kind of municipal interests was never very far in Atlantic City. I mean, there was occasionally some you know, do-gooders, but they would never prevail in Atlantic City. Those who sort of were part of the hustle always ran the place. There's a line about Philadelphia that said, you know, Philadelphia was corrupt and contented. And that's certainly true of Atlantic City. Well, many of you may think about the time you gambled away the title to your car when you think about Atlantic City. Oh, well, maybe that's just me. In the early days of Atlantic City, tourists from Philly thought of the Boardwalk. And that's Boardwalk with a capital B, bitches. The first of its kind anywhere in the United States, the Boardwalk became a status symbol for those traveling to the Jersey Shore, I can't read, and further deepened the racial divides in the city that were mirroring the rest of the nation at the time. So again, the Boardwalk... Um was first relatively modest um, endeavor to lay planks over the ocean so people, again, could have access to this healthy air. And people began to understand, and it kind of became an attraction. People liked it. They liked the ability to walk. They liked the ability to not get entirely sandy. And so local kind of business people begin to experiment way, with ways, one, to make it more permanent. They would lay it down in the summer and then take it up and to raise it. And so finally, by the, I guess it's the fourth try, like kind of about the turn of the 19th to 20th century, they figure out something like they have today, which was a kind of walkway um, that people could go on and then hotels get built along it. But the kind of culture of America and the culture of Atlantic City is changing along with it. And one of the things that Atlantic City becomes is no longer a health resort, but a place to show that you've made it in America. And... 
the boardwalk becomes the kind of premier place to do that showing. And what does that mean to show that you made it in America? It means essentially, right, to be able to demonstrate your leisure, to walk and find clothes. And so the boardwalk, by the early part of the 20th century, is a dress-up place. They walked on the boardwalk dressed up, and not in Sunday clothes, but Saturday night clothes, the, the sort of flashiest clothes they could. And they did that so that people could see them and that they, they could see and be seen. And that really became the point of the boardwalk. And I think the thing that makes this clearest is um, the benches on the boardwalk in Atlantic City did not point towards the ocean. They pointed inward towards the boardwalk. The show was the boardwalk, and that was what people went there to do and, and was kind of the primary attraction. And so that's what's different about Atlantic City, say, from Coney Island. There were some rides on the boardwalk, but that wasn't what dominated the boardwalk. What dominated the boardwalk was the promenade itself. That route as a, play, as a destination, again, to see and be seen, and it was a way to announce that you made it into the middle class in America. And how did you do that? You did it by taking time off, and eventually, as I sort of talk about in my book, by deploying kind of black labor in a particular way often. Atlantic City, now known for its mega casinos that remain a monument to 80s glamour, once housed some of the most ornate and honestly beautiful early 20th century architecture. And if you don't believe me, Google old Atlantic City and prepare to be shook. Historical preservationists must have a mini heart attack every time they see what a beautiful city this once was. Not that it isn't now, it's just a different kind of beautiful. So, you know, the, the two really sort of signature hotels in Atlantic City were built by this architect, William Price, this guy from Philadelphia. And he was sort of famous for working with concrete. And what concrete gave him was an ability to create very ornamented buildings. And that's the first thing that I think that we need to kind of recognize, that the buildings on the boardwalk were not just ornate inside, they were ornate outside. And that suggested, right, that the people who, that they were part of the landscape, right? They were part of the decoration of the boardwalk and that the people walking by them deserved to be entertained. And in many ways that they weren't all about function. And, and you can kind of contrast that if you think about a glass tower in downtown LA, right? And that essentially says that nothing on the outside matters, right? And the people walking by them don't matter. They're not attempting to kind of entertain them in any shape or form. That's not true. Everyone in L.A. matters. Well, everyone who's an Instagram star, rich or famous. If you're not one of those, then no, actually you don't. Everything that's important happens inside. Well, the boardwalk buildings, again, their first thing was that they were kind of on the outside, ornate, part of the decoration, and honored the kind of walking and presence of the people walking on the boardwalk. So... You know, the Marlboro Blenheim had this kind of Orionalist kind of, kind of domed Moorish piers. And the Claridge was meant to look like a mini um, Empire State Building. The Chalfont Haddon Hall looked, was supposed to look like a castle. On the inside, they were also ornate, huge lobbies. Um, again, the lobby was not functional in these places. They were places for people to sit to see and be seen and to interact with other people. Highly decorated, really ornate bathrooms on the first floor, um, marble finishes, chrome finishes. They also featured 
incredibly lavish restaurants. Um, people often did what was called the American plan when they stayed there and they paid for their hotel room and meals for the week. And, you know, kind of probably like familiar in film, like Mrs. Maisel, right? That you would sit with the same people every night while you, while you ate there. And in fact, in one of the hotels, you could pick whether you wanted white or African-American waiters. Like you could pick your sort of designated service regime. So the point of the most sort of spectacular hotels was to be over the top, to suggest luxury both inside and out and suggest a sense of accomplishment. And so literally people would tell stories that, that their sort of mobility would be sort of lived out through the hotels. And then in the north inlet of the city, kind of going towards Brigantine, were you know, big wood rooming houses. Some of them were kosher, for instance. And um, so maybe a Jewish working class family would stay there. And when they made it, they would move up to, you know, maybe the Shelbourne, which was a pretty nice hotel, right? And when they really made it, they would move to the Tremor or not Chalfont Haddon Hotel, which actually barred Jews for a long time, um, where resorts is. But they would sort of do that social mobility by kind of trading up as they got wealthier from one hotel to the next hotel. And that is the story of my family's journey through America. By the early 20th century, Atlantic City had become the Disneyland of its time, a place for white middle-class people to be surrounded by other white middle-class people and do the things that white middle-class people like to do, like ask for your manager. I think the first thing that's really important about Atlantic City, and, and this is in something of a contrast to its kind of rival, if you will, or this place most like it, Coney Island, is Coney Island is a working class to middle class resort, right? Because it's accessible by the subway. Atlantic City is a little harder to get to. And I think it, that makes it America's first great middle class resort. And that's essentially what Disneyland is, right? I mean, in class terms, it's a place that the middle class goes and it also kind of confirms middle class status. And, you know, and part of this is, how you confirm middle class status is you make sure it's not cheap. Right. Disneyland is right is essentially that price is important. It acts as a filter, keeping some people out, right? Both the distance and the actual location of the place. Atlantic City, similarly, right? It's not as far as Newport or Atlanta or Cape May, which were kind of more high end resorts, but it costs something to get there, and it costs something once you were there, and that acts as a filter to kind of create a middle class resort. The second thing that sort of likens it to Disney is it is very much a kind of emblem of who people are at the time. And if Disney sort of represents the kind of suburban turn in America, Atlantic City is a very urban place. And it reflects the kind of urbanity of America and urbanity that at that moment is almost electric, both in its signs and its performance and its dress up. And so they're kind of comparable for their moment, right? And then I, say, I would say the third thing is they're both mass resorts. And in many ways, there's no comparison to anything. Atlantic City's Disneyland, before there's Disneyland, it attracts 16 million people a year into the 1920s and 1930s. And there's nothing like it, right? There, I mean, only Coney Island, but again, that many people are willing to sacrifice that much time and effort to get there. I think how it becomes Disneyland. So it's not the rides, it's not the attractions, it's the kind of class sort of importance of the place in the American kind of hierarchy and how they're both emblematic of their era in different ways. 
Visitors to Atlantic City oftentimes forget they're visiting a fully functioning city upon coming to town, heading instead straight to a casino and bypassing anything else along the way. Well, that's me. But in order to create this great vacation escape, a city needed to spring up to support its growing tourism. A city that would have its finger on the pulse of New Jersey government and be riddled with corruption for decades to come. In terms of form, Atlantic City's urban. In, in terms of numbers, it's not. I mean, it's never more than 65, 70,000 people. But in terms of form, it's an urban place. And, and that starts with the fact that it's a grid. It is laid out on right angles with the state streets going towards the beach, right? And the ocean streets going north-south, um, even though directions are all messed up. In Atlantic City, they call west-north. and it's, So it has a grid feel to it of right angles, right? So it's not, for instance, if you've ever been to Cape May Point, for instance, which is a kind of windy place um, that makes no real sense. It's a grid. The housing kind of, if you imagine it as layers, that there's the boardwalk along the beach, and that's like the showcase of the city. The next street, Pacific Avenue, a green property, right, is the kind of resort show place, right, where hotels, the back end of hotels, where you come in, eventually motels. And then you have Atlantic Avenue, a yellow property on the Monopoly board, that is the kind of center of kind of urban commerce. And so in order to basically sort of have people to work in the, in the hotels and to work in the businesses all around, be all behind the boardwalk developed an urban grid. And that grid, I mean, it looks exactly like most of Philadelphia in a place like Baltimore. It's all two, really not very many, three, two-story modest row houses with front porches. The city has public transportation, its own kind of weird little public transportation system called Jitneys, which essentially they had buses early on that looked like those buses that take people from the airport, the rental car buses, the little stubby ones. It had a main street, it had movie theaters, and the city, like many cities built in the 19th and 20th century in the United States, is deeply balkanized. An address can tell you everything you need to know about a person. So if you live in Ducktown, for instance, you're almost assuredly Italian-American. If you live in what's called the North Side, that means you're African-American. The city was as assiduously segregated as any place in the South, right? I mean, there were very clear lines of segregation in the city. If you lived in Chelsea, for instance, good chance you were Jewish, right? Or if you lived in parts of North Inlet, good chance you were Jewish. Irish lived throughout the city, and it was very much one of those kinds of places where ethnicity mattered, neighborhoods mattered, neighborhoods told you much of what there what was going on, and it felt like a city even though it was small. It just was built in that grid sort of fashion. As whites began to flee major cities in the 1950s and 60s, they also stopped coming to Atlantic City. Many experts think that air travel to places like Florida and the Caribbean killed AC. But like a lot of the rest of our history, the answer of why the city declined may be rooted more in our country's racism. What a shocker. There's a lot of explanations for what happens to Atlantic City. And the story sort of begins during World War II. You know, tourism was not the best business to be in during World War II. People weren't traveling as much. And the Atlantic City hotels 
become the place where many um, soldiers stay, particularly wounded soldiers. They convalesce there. After the war ends, you know, tourism returns to Atlantic City. And the question is, but by the early 1960s, actually by the 1964, say, Democratic National Convention, when Lyndon Johnson is nominated to be president of the United States, Atlantic City has clearly seen its better days, right? Um, reporters write again and again about how run down the city is. And so the question is, what happens during those periods? Like, what happens between World War II and 1964? And Many of the explanations are kind of interesting ones. Um, people would argue that backyard swimming pools killed Atlantic City, as you know, people in suburban Philadelphia built pools in their backyards. They no longer needed to go to the shore for a vacation. People argued at the time that air traffic travel killed Atlantic City, that people began to sort of travel further on cheap airlines, going to places like Disneyland and eventually Disney World. People argued, you know, that World War II killed Atlantic City, that the hotel owners grabbed all the money they could during the war from the government and didn't reinvest in their properties. And when the post-war period came, you know, they were sitting on kind of aging structures that no longer engaged people. And all of these probably explain some things, but I don't think they really get at it. Really, the thing that I think is important, Atlantic City thrived when it could segregate people. And but what I mean by that is white immigrants, first and second generation Americans came to Atlantic City to demonstrate they'd made it in America. And part of that was demonstrating that they were white, that they would be fully included in the kind of white imaginary of America. And that couldn't happen in a place that was integrated. That just, you know, American popular culture wasn't integrated. Nothing really was integrated about American life. And if you think about vaudeville, if you think about Amos and Andy, much of the way people became white was by making fun of or employing black people, right? And Atlantic City offered that with these rolling chairs that would push people down the boardwalk, white people by African-Americans. I would argue in the post-war period, Atlantic City couldn't segregate anymore. African-Americans themselves who had made money after World War II and wanted to announce that they had made it began to sort of demand access to the boardwalk, began demand access to the hotels. And when that happens and when white people, and they're pretty clear about this, when they sort of walk on the boardwalk and see African-Americans dressed up saying they had made it, that didn't seem like the place you could show off anymore. And they began to sort of move to places that were whiter. Disneyland, that used its location, right, in suburban LA. You had to have a car and you had to have a price to sort of segregate to the Bahamas, right, to kind of these cheap excursion trips. And Atlantic City no longer by that point seemed like such a fresh and interesting place to go. And I think what you see happening is a really interesting, back to your question about urbanity, an interesting dynamic happened in Atlantic City that's happening in cities all across America. It begins to suffer from white flight, except Atlantic City suffers from white flight in two directions, white flight of residents and white flight of tourists. So by the mid-1960s, Atlantic City is battling this kind of group of people who are leaving and actually the beginning of tourism by African-Americans and Puerto Ricans, which further drive many white working class and middle class people away from the place. And so here, I think Atlantic City becomes a really kind of interesting analogy to the rest of America, which is being shaped during this period by a powerful impulse to kind of retreat, to run away from kind of any, I mean, any form of kind of integration. And it's one of the profound ironies of American history, right? That at the very moment that you have this civil rights challenge 
at the very moment that the United States sort of becomes less discriminatory, it resegregates itself. And Atlantic City is a really, I think, powerful example of that process. By the 1970s, in a last-ditch effort to save the town, New Jersey passed the Casino Referendum Bill, allowing casinos in Atlantic City and nowhere else in New Jersey, a law that still actually stands to this day. But as money poured into the city, it didn't necessarily impact the residents as much as it did the casino owners. I really wanted to do a Dateline-style interlude. Atlantic City bet all its money on red, but would it finally put the city in the black? For the most part, people in Atlantic City were in favor of this. They, by 1974, when it was first proposed, 1976, when it passed, Atlantic City had endured some pretty hard economic times. And the night that the referendum passed in November 1976, it was a cold night. If you spend any time in Atlantic City, cold and damp, it's, it's pretty nasty out there. Like on yeah. the boardwalk, it has this kind of icy feel that cuts right through you. Despite that, people were dancing in the streets, literally, on, um, and on the boardwalk, because they believed that, that the casinos would save them, and they would save their town, and money would come sort of raining, you know, like buckets of money would come into the city. So the initial prognosis or the initial feeling was really optimistic. People began to invest in their properties. They began to invest in their restaurants. There was a buying spree, right? There was just a crazy real estate market going on. Some develop, some people were buying up properties and burning out residents because um, they would pay less taxes on unimproved land as they, there's a lot of trying to put together parcels for casinos. All this is kind of crazy stuff is going on. And when the casino, first casino opens, which is Resorts International, which itself has this weird checkered history, the initial money for the company was CIA, like from a CIA kind of conduit. Um, but that's a long, crazy story. But on opening night and the weekend of um, Labor Day, 1978, again, people were like thought that everything would change. And on the boardwalk, people waited in line to get into resorts. Gamblers at the slot machines were urinating in cups rather than giving up their machines. Listen, when the slots are hot, you got to do what you got to do. No judgments. And the next day, resorts couldn't open um, on time because it couldn't count the money fast enough. It, it went by a little market in town and bought peach baskets to put all the money in because it, it just didn't anticipate making that much money. Yet by the end of the weekend, a restaurant just a couple blocks away would be throwing away food. And this is sort of what happened in Atlantic City. The casinos, which would eventually become 12 or 13, depending on how you count them, would for a while make money. But the town itself would have a really uneven kind of story with gambling. Unemployment would actually go up by 1990 when there was, you know, almost double digit casinos. Atlantic City was attracting 20 to 30 million visitors a year. Yet it didn't have a supermarket or a single movie theater. And this uneven kind of private growth at the casinos and the kind of atrophy of public space in Atlantic City I think became what happened. And in part, what people didn't fully understand was the dynamic of how a casino operated. The whole point of a casino is to suck people in. Imagine almost like a vacuum cleaner. No windows, right? It's the collapse time to disorient people, right? I mean, this is what they do. And gambling for people who are gamblers is hypnotic. 
And what the casinos wanted was to suck all the discretionary money out of those people. So they didn't really want people going to a movie for two hours. That's two hours they didn't gamble. They didn't want people, eventually Atlantic City would build a baseball stadium. This is the last thing they wanted, a, a game that is conceivably endless and certainly seems endless. Though, but like, right, you know, they didn't want people necessarily going to local restaurants and having a meal because shows in casinos are famously 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. You can't be there too long. And to keep people there, the casinos give away food and drink. Those are loss leaders for them. How does a restaurant compete with that? How does a bar compete with that? And what turned out was they really couldn't. And so, you know, hundreds of restaurants would go out of business in Atlantic City in the first 10 years after gambling. Again, I mean, to me, the most poignant thing is, you know, you have 30 million gamblers, not a single supermarket, um, not a single movie theater. There were movie, um, Saturday Night Fever was playing the night that the casinos opened, but that theater would close. The shops on the boardwalk that had hung on were gone, right? Like there were no more, there had been a few mink stores and can you know, upscale candy shops. They're not going to make it, you know, the, the casinos opened their own stores, right? For clothing and things like that. And so it again created this really kind of dysfunctional kind of economy where the casinos are sucking all the money out, like out of the people visiting the city, and very little of it is sort of kind of coming to the city itself. And I, I, I kind of believe that actually, in a weird way, the casinos benefited from the decay of the city. Let's just take the current president who owns a number of casinos in Atlantic City. Trump complained about a lot of things. Really. He does not seem to be the type to complain. He complained about access roads to his casinos, but interestingly enough, he never complained about crime in the city, which, you know, seemed to be going up during this period. He never complained about decay in the city, because I think what he understood and what other casino owners understood is that created actually an even bigger desire for what they had. People would drive on the streets of Atlantic City and say, holy shit, this is like, because it became this kind of like, image, you know, almost a TV image of what a decaying city looked like. I got to hurry up and get inside. So the fact that the city was decaying was almost as if there was no competition to what they offered. Now, eventually they would face competition from other places that had casinos, but they didn't mind that the city, city was kind of in bad shape. And the city itself was in such bad shape that it sort of lent itself to the casinos, like whatever you want. And it basically created these kind of sculpted entryways in the city where you didn't have to interact with the city itself. They hid the city um, from people driving up and the casinos moved their parking lots closer and closer to the highways in that suction cup kind of metaphor, right? There were wa automatic walkways over the streets. You know, it looked like Minnesota, you know, where you had kind of, you know, parking lot to the casino. So people never had to interact with the city itself. And therefore, the city never got a lot of the benefits of it. And there are a couple of other issues involved. But I think that dynamic is really important. And again, I think a place, again, where Atlantic City illustrates what's happening. I mean, I'm always amazed that I've been amazed for years. And when people will call me and say, well, we're going to build a casino in you know, pick a city, Gary. Tell me what happened in Atlantic City. I was like, it's a bad idea, right? Like yeah. I've always said, you know, New Orleans is kind of the model, right? Where the goal should be to put the casino out of business. In a sense, to have enough attractions that people want to go to that the casino is no longer a kind of viable. That's when you know your city's in good shape, when you can put a casino out of business. 
By 1986, Atlantic City was once again the most popular tourist destination in the United States. So fucking random. God, I love the 80s. But the city outside of the casinos continued to struggle. Well, let's say it's the most popular tourist destination in America, yet the average stay is six hours. That's longer than the average day used to be in my bedroom on a Friday night. You know what I'm saying? So, well, Vegas actually is getting less people. People are spending more money in Vegas, right? They're just, they're just going, they're dipping into the casinos. Remember, it's, it's a two and a half hour drive from a quarter of the nation's population, right? Um, from DC, New York, and Philly. I mean, it's a pretty dense. Well, what's happening is, is that the casinos are growing, business is booming. The city is continuing to fall apart. The people who are benefiting in an interesting way, right, Atlantic City had declined because of white flight, and the benefits of gambling actually basically begin to accrue to places outside of Atlantic City. Summers Point, Mays Landing, Egg Harbor Township, these little communities that get housing, the mall, none of that comes to Atlantic City at first. It moves in the pattern that we're seeing across the nation to these suburban areas, a kind of interesting development model, right? And there's no real strategic, meaningful planning to actually rebuild Atlantic City itself and to kind of reward casino workers who live in town or, well, the casinos are developing, the schools are kind of falling apart, right? That like the kinds of things that would sustain the city itself get put to the back burner. And so there's a really kind of important missed opportunity in Atlantic City between 1978 and the period that you talk about, where casinos are making money, but it's not necessarily being reinvested in Atlantic City itself. Nobody's talking about high-speed rail. So basically, the big casino owners came in, made a bunch of money, and seemingly screwed over everyone in the town. Hmm, that doesn't seem American at all. But like from the monopoly part of Atlantic City forward, I think I would just take it one step further. And, and I write this line. I was like, I think Atlantic City is like like America on steroids. Right. It's not just it's classic Atlantic City grift, but it's really classic American grift. Right. Atlantic City is just like this hyper version of America. Right. You know, if capitalists are left to their own devices, they don't just create wealth for everyone. They create wealth for the few and narrowly. And that's why. I, we have regulation. Atlantic City is, I think, a really a kind of clear reminder of that, right? Ba- basically, the city said, look, we're going to let the casinos be the urban developers here. And what they prove beyond a reasonable doubt, I think, is that urban de- that casinos and tourism, you know, conventioners are really bad at urban planning. Well into the 2000s, Atlantic City seemingly was riding high with its glamorous 1980s decor until reality came a knock, knock, knocking on her door again. And the city was faced with yet another economic downturn. Competition, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, there's a bigger thing going on, right? That the American economy is beginning to sputter. And at the same time, there's a sense that, you know, we're not going to tax people anymore. The taxes are bad. So, but there's this weird thing. P- taxes are bad, but people still want many government services. And there's the beginning of this kind of like, how can we create government services without taxes. Well, we'll have lotteries, we'll have casinos, we'll have, you know, fees on this and that, right? I mean, the world we live in today, right, where we have all these kind of indirect taxes. And so, you know, basically people in Maryland, in Connecticut, in New York, eventually every place around Atlantic City is like, 
well, we need tax revenues. Why should we let Atlantic City have them all? And Atlantic City becomes a victim to increased competition. And first it's, you know, from Native American casinos in Connecticut, and then it's from, you know, other kinds of casino spaces in Philadelphia. And they're really very clear about it. And here in Philadelphia, it's like, we need money. We're losing revenues. Why should we let people go to Atlantic City? And that kind of multiplication sort of takes a, a, a bite out of Atlantic City. I think this, that that's the biggest thing. I think the second thing is, you know, eventually Atlantic City's decay is, catches up to it. It doesn't offer much else. Millennials and even pre-millennials aren't wildly into gambling at first. Atlantic City seems kind of oddly dated, right? It, it, you know, it, it had taken this Vegas model. The acts are still a little bit dated in the kind of casinos. And so it did, didn't seem to offer much to people. It basically is in this kind of, um, and then it begins to cannibalize itself. You know, one investor comes in and believes it can make it in Atlantic City and opens a new casino and they kind of sort of make it hard for the next casino. But what's really interesting also in Atlantic City about this period is when the casinos that actually make money are the ones that are essentially not in Atlantic City. Kind of extending this kind of fear of the city thing. The ones that make the most money are the ones out in the marina where you never have to touch look at any part of the city. Borgata begins to really make money. It is um, it's a kind of interesting story. And so then what happens is the revenues from casinos start to kind of soften and the state still needs its money and Atlantic City gets even less revenues right and and then it has less money to invest right and the cycle just continues continues and continues since I had Bryant on the line and he's an expert in urban studies especially when it comes to Atlantic City I wondered what were his ideas that could bring Atlantic City back to its former glory there's an interesting line. I say it in the book. And this guy, Reese Paley, was a really interesting guy who owned the Marlboro Blenheim. And he says, you know, what Atlantic City needed was a bulldozer 12 blocks long. And then he, then he had this line, like, you know, what we need is to, to say that everybody in Atlantic City is part of a native tribe and kind of then basically take all the money from the casinos and redistribute it to the people inside of it. It needs, it needs bold, dramatic almost non-democratic leadership, right? Like democracy kind of gets in the way, right? It needs like to be Singapore or something, right? Like where you can just have like this bold kind of vision running the place and sort of dictating what happens. And But that's that's not what's going to take place. And I, and I, I do think that the people, I, I've said this a lot, the people who run Atlantic City are addicted to models in the past. And what they continue to be addicted to is is gambling, right? They've gambled on gambling. They want to gamble more on gambling. The first thing to break that cycle is the building of the Stockton campus on um, at Albany Avenue in the boardwalk. And I think that's a really interesting, like what's going to happen there is going to be really interesting in Atlantic City. Can that campus kind of seed itself there and create its own generic growth, right? Can it can it support some bars and student hangouts, and then some investment in the properties around it to rent to students? Are faculty going to move in? Will the school be able to subsidize some rents and buying as faculty have done? And I mean, schools have done in some places like where I live near the University of Pennsylvania. Like, can that process take hold and create a more kind of organic and small scale growth? Maybe. You know, I think a high speed line for Atlantic City would be really crucial. If you could build a high speed line, like a real line, it's no further than no further than the line from like Claremont to downtown L.A. 
as someone who spent his childhood outside of DC and grew up in New York City, I've always been fascinated by Atlantic City. It is truly a remarkable, one-of-a-kind, and fucking bizarre place that I highly recommend you visit. It really is just like nowhere else you'll ever go. And its history is so rich and unique. I wondered what made Bryant so fascinated by Atlantic City and why he thought Atlantic City had such a special place in American history? It's a kind of, I mean, first of all, like it's so embedded in the American consciousness, right? It's the basis of Monopoly where the Miss America pageant, which was, you know, like the highest ranked TV show in the country. Someone like you, right? Your story is pretty common. If you grew up on the East Coast, particularly in a kind of second or third generation immigrant family, you had some tie to Atlantic City. I think that's that that place kind of matters. But I also think, right, it's it's a place that somehow speaks to Americans and always had in its kind of kind of sleaziness, its compellingness, its on the makeness, right? It's sort of, and the rawness of all that in Atlantic City, right? That it can be distilled in one place. I think, you know, this is why storytellers are attracted to it. This is why Louis Mall was attracted to it. This is why, even though I think they kind of messed it up, the people who did Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, yeah no, but they understood the story that was there, right? Yeah. It was, and and I, I do think it's, we're back to that urban question. Atlantic City sort of was this fascinating place that kind of could distill so much into a small accessible place. If you have any kind of vision, right, it's hard not to stare at. There's something compelling about it and compelling about the stories, both the kind of good ones and bad ones. You guys, I love Atlantic City. Call me trash and you wouldn't be the first, but I've always seen Atlantic City as a microcosm of the best and absolute worst of America smashed into one tiny town. The fascinating stories of social injustice, mob-run nightlife, and political corruption are too detailed and layered to fit into one podcast. But what has interested me the most about Atlantic City for all of these years is that it just it never gives up. It's constantly trying to reinvent itself, not always succeeding, but you've got to root for it because as Americans, we love an underdog. My only hope is that Donald Trump's business plan for America is stronger than the one he had in Atlantic City. I'd like to thank Bryant Simon for joining me today. Secretly, I've been a closeted Bryant Simon stan for years. His book, Boardwalk of Dreams, is unbelievably well-researched and such an amazing read. I've read it twice. And if you're looking to learn more about Atlantic City history and, you know, just urban renewal, it's an incredibly useful resource. The man is a genius and I'm honored to have had him speak with me today. I'd also like to thank, as usual, Darian Shulman for doing our amazing music and John Wynn for doing all of our artwork. If you want to say hi or recommend a topic for an upcoming show, shoot us an email at historybuffspod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at historybuffspod. And like I said at the beginning, if you don't subscribe and give us a five-star review, I'm going to get real pissed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but please do if you're enjoying the show. And thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Mark Brendan Rosenberg. And this has been another episode of Fucked Up History. 